Hey, hey everyone. My name is Agnes Chen and this is a Rise Resilient podcast where we gather and connect so that all can rise resilient. I'm incredibly excited and grateful for today's conversation with Tapasa Killabuck, a fierce community advocate, a mama of three beautiful babes, and a friend who inspires me daily. Tapsa is an Indigenous activist and speaker focused on community engagement and education involving Indigenous realities in modern society. Currently, she is the manager of Indigenous relations at In From The Cold, a shelter in Calgary, Alberta for families experiencing homelessness. She is also the co-chair on the board of directors for the Women's Centre, and is on the board of directors for the Coloring It Forward Reconciliation Society. She facilitates blanket exercises and conducts speaking engagements throughout the community, which is how I met her two years ago. This year, September 2020, Tapsa was involved in organizing Orange Shirt Day, a day held to honor and commemorate residential school survivors. Orange Shirt Day means a lot to me. If it weren't for our elders, ancestors, and young people, because the last school closed in 1996, I would not be where I am today. I remember to thank them. Even though they endured unimaginable torment, some of them came out and excelled. And not in the way Western society thinks it is successful, but in their own ways. Even though they had to go through all of that from the tender age 4 to 6 to 16 to 18, they decided that they wanted more for their children. And they worked hard and their children worked hard. I see it as if there was a path. In the path, it is wild. Lots of trees, lots of grass, vines, no way to get through. But every ancestor and all of my relations cleared the path and left me rocks to make sure that I don't get lost. They did that for me. And because of that, I'm able to do it for my children. When I was 10, I was not proud of my indigeneity, but my 10 and 11 year olds are today. Their legacy is working. They did that for us selflessly. This is why I wear an orange shirt. This is why I honor all my relations. Okay. Hi, Tavisa. Hi, Agnes. (laughs) I'm so grateful that you're here um, and going to chat and get really in depth about your experience. Yeah, I'm excited. So I wanted to share. So the first time I heard you speak was two years ago. It was actually when I first started this little grassroots initiative, Starlings. Um, And it was at the Circles of Hope conference that In From the Cold puts on where you are the Indigenous Relations Manager. Mm-hmm. And it was a really powerful talk, I think, for everybody in the room. And you shared your experience uh, being the child of a residential school survivor. Mm-hmm. They didn't really ask me until like three weeks before the symposium had happened. So I really had to think about it. And I wanted to think about the story and the the story that I wanted people to learn from. And from being a child of a residential school survivor, I didn't find out that my mom went to a residential school until 2016. So up until like my whole entire life until 2016, I had no idea what the impacts of colonization had done for myself and my for my family. And we like I have five sisters and we have experienced it 
all of, we have lived in the same household, but we all experienced it differently. And I'm very happy to say like, I was able to like go through the process of healing to get to get to where I am right now, but it, that's not um, what it looks like for all of us. So you only found out about residential schools in 2016, four years ago, alongside probably a lot of Canadians like myself, non-Indigenous Canadians, a huge part of your family history. What was that like to learn about that? I remember like exploring those ideas that I, I wasn't like a messed up child. Like what happened to me is what made me messed up. And I, I learned a lot in school. I didn't, but it was kind of difficult to learn in school because like I'm going through the process of learning everything with along with other students, but teachers and other people would expect me to like talk about that and what that looked like for me. And I, that was really hard. Can I ask? So when you say school, yeah, you're talking about when you went to school post-secondary. Yeah. yeah post-secondary at, for social work. And so 2016, being in the social work program, learning about residential schools and a huge part of your history, was that kind of the start of your advocacy work? I knew I always wanted to do social work because I love taking care of people. And once I was going through the process, it was kind of like, it was hard because I want, I knew that then is when I knew that I had to serve my Indigenous people. There was a way that I need to to serve my community and I had no idea what that was going to look like because I up until 2016 I had no idea I was just as ignorant as everyone else I thought like I tried really hard to be like a rare indigenous person or like someone who lives well but even though I wasn't living well at the same time like I was a single mom of two kids you know I I just had left a like a very toxic relationship and um I want, I still wanted to have that, like, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. So you took, you took your experiences as a fault of Indigenous people and you wanted to rise above. Yeah. And I, so I had that internalized racism, which a lot of people, a lot of my people have because they like the only perception that they see of Indigenous people is like online in media, or if you see someone on like in Calgary, especially because I moved here in 2008, um, I saw Indigenous people on the streets and I saw Indigenous people on the sea train who weren't like, in quotations, acting normally. But then like, but I didn't understand why they didn't, why they didn't act normally. And so going through that process of realizing like, they're not doing this on purpose. Like this is what's done to them. Mm-hmm. And it was done to me. It was done to my mom and all of my sisters. And I knew that I, I had to like break that international intergenerational cycle. And um, so I'm trying. What is intergenerational trauma? Intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma is what happens when untreated trauma-related stress experienced years prior to the current generation is passed on to second and subsequent generations within a family. This trauma-related stress impacts how individuals within a family understand, cope with, and heal from their traumatic experiences, ultimately impacting the relationships between parents and children and predisposing them to further trauma. Without supportive environments and communities, this can result in negative repeated patterns of behavior, 
poor parent-child relationships and emotional attachment, and untreated or poorly treated substance use or severe mental illness. Further to this is historical trauma, which is a cumulative, multi-generational, collective experience of emotional and psychological injury in communities and in its descendants. In Canada, Indigenous peoples have endured incredible amounts of trauma as a direct result of colonization and residential schools. The residential school system was created in the 1800s by then Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald with the main purpose to assimilate Indigenous children into civilized people. While in these so-called schools, not only were family ties weakened and cultural linkages broken, but Indigenous children endured unimaginable sexual, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual abuse by the respected people of the church. This abuse, coercion, and control placed upon Indigenous children at the hands of the government and church provided a parenting model based on punishment, which continues to have its impact on many families today. The residential schools were in existence in what we call Canada for well over 100 years and had at least 150,000 Indigenous children who were forced to attend up until the last one closed in Saskatchewan in 1996. The experiences were hidden from most of Canada's history until survivors of the system were finally able to find the strength, courage and support to bring their experiences to light in several thousand court cases that ultimately led to the largest class action lawsuit in Canada's history. On Wednesday, June 11, 2008, 12 years after the closure of the last school and more than 150 years after the first school opened, then Prime Minister of Canada, the right Stephen Harper, made a statement of apology to former students of the residential schools on behalf of the Government of Canada. So after you found out about residential schools in 2016, mm-hmm. were you able to have a conversation? I imagine this would be incredibly hard, but a conversation with your mom and her experiences or, you know, you finding out was that helpful on her healing journey? Kind of and not really. She kind of validated that she had gone to a school with like nuns mm-hmm. and church people. So she didn't talk about that. But my mom isn't in a place of healing where she's able to have those conversations. And I and it upsets me because my dad is a white man, mm-hmm. which is fine. Like I'm I but he the book in the boomer generation and he believed he believed I don't know if he does now but he believes that residential schools were were for a good thing and that was like and I had to be like no dad like it's not and he doesn't think that my mom went to a residential school Mm. like I don't know if he he's a very proud like Canadian like he's very patriotic but for me like you I found out as a young adult I can't imagine being Indigenous and finding out what, you know, my parents, that they went to a school, a system that tried to get rid of all that they are. And I can't imagine what that, um, what that experience would be. I feel like if I, because like my language was stolen from me, um, if I was able to speak to her in her own language, I feel like we'd be able to get a lot further. But I also don't want to pressure her, but I am curious because she is, 
Like my mom has lived a very long life and she has lived a very hard life and I can see it like it's very apparent in like and how she stands and when she hugs or like when she feels like she's forced to say I love you or like and what when my mom like hugs she gets like super stiff and then she like gives like the big old pat on the back and then like it's just a like sideways hug of like see ya like get away from me now and even like I remember as a child like I couldn't stand behind her she felt very unsafe with people standing behind her so I like just thinking about that and even with like her being strict of like poking me in the back and like saying like stand up straight or like say thank you or say excuse me or and like all of those things like I, I looking back at it now I can understand where her influence had come from mm -hmm. and now I understand why um, my sisters and I don't speak her language and um, it's really hard because I just want not I just want the best for my mom and I wish I could get her the like the healing that she needs but it has to she has to in initiate that conversation mm -hmm. and it's really hard because my mom second language is English so like even having a conversation with her she doesn't fully understand what I'm trying to say I remember when you were speaking and you had a beautiful picture of your mom um and next to it you had numbers and letters yeah the Eskimo number which is like and they like they called them dog tags because they like you're being tagged like a dog would be tagged and that was like that was how you were identified to the Canadian government and like the the officials or whomever was in our community because they did couldn't they didn't they couldn't uh, pronounce our language and our names and our words so they were just like we're not going to do that. We're going to give you these numbers and that's how we're going to know you. And then that's when like the operation like surname came into our community as well, because like traditionally we would only have one name and you would be named by uh, after someone in your community that has had a big influence on you and your family. And that would be your Sayunik. But because of like colonization, they wanted to, um, they wanted to like civilize the name and that's like my name is Tapasa Killabuck so Killabuck was my surname and I, I really like that name Killabuck but Tapasa is actually Tabitha which is like a um, bi bi biblical name and but because the Inuit can't pronounce us they name me Tapasa so that influenced right there like that's my whole entire identity right. and it's because of um, colonization again right right wow can you you know you recognize the influence of colonization and residential school in in your childhood can you talk about you know elaborate a little bit more about what that meant for you growing up yeah so I wasn't like like we were talking about I wasn't aware of anything and I remember I was born in Nova Scotia but then soon after we moved up north um, and I lived in a small town in northern Quebec and then in Iqaluit. And I remember being living this privileged life, this life of privilege, even though my, my dad was just like super angry all of the time and my mom was super angry all of the time. And thankfully, um, they decided to quit drinking when I when they had our first their first daughter. And I'm so thankful for that because I couldn't imagine like all that trauma and alcohol like mixed together. Like our lives would have been like even more like crappy than it than it was. But we 
um, yeah, so we lived up north, and I remember, like, all of the good things up north, because we were, like, out on the land, and we um, went hunting, and we had our community, but then, like, behind closed doors, like, there was a lot of, like, abuse, there was a lot of, like, name calling, sorry, name calling, and then there just was, like, I just wasn't sure if I was actually being loved or not, and that really hit me hard for a long time, and then we went to, we moved back to Nova Scotia, and um we were so poor like my dad um uh, worked as a taxi driver and my mom worked seasonal work and um a lot of the time like we didn't eat or we had very little to eat and i remember this is like one of my meals that's like ingrained in my head like i was so hungry and we didn't have any milk we didn't have like i don't think we even had hot water we didn't have power at that time and i remember eating like shredded wheat with some cold water and so I put some gross sprinkles on there and I ate it because I was so hungry. And I remember like, like anxiety and depression runs in my family. And mm -hmm. at, at 11, I remember like, I don't want to be here anymore. And I like thought of this big plan where I was just going to lay in the backyard and put my head on a rock and have another rock drop in my head. So I didn't have to live this life anymore. Oh, and I, I know, yeah. which is like, yeah. like wild to think about now, like 20 years later. And I'm very thankful that I didn't go through with it. That I like, there was just like inkling of hope inside of me. What, what gave you that inkling of hope? I want to thank like the the adults that I had in my life because there were some like positive influences for my teachers. Um, I remember one teacher and his name was Mr. Pigeon and he like really, really liked me for who I was. And, um, amazing. which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think like a lot of those like positive influences and even like my friend's parents who had like, they were like kind of normal. Like they all see, saw value in me as well. And they tried to like show that to me. And I'm very thankful for all of those, um, people, but yeah, it was hard. And then I went into like, Fast forward a couple of years later, I started drinking when I was 14, um, like hanging, I don't want to say hanging out with the wrong people, but it was just like people who were like a little bit older than I was and people who like were going through similar things that I was and like drinking was uh, like a way that we could feel good about ourselves. And then at 16, like that's when I experienced like uh, drugs. Mm -hmm. too and alcohol and that made me feel really good and I remember like being really young and like I was 80 pounds and I was like 17 years old and I was like totally not in a healthy place and um at 18 um uh something tragic happened in our community and my then who would be end up being my boyfriend came back to Nova Scotia and he was just like, and then we like instantly fell in love. Like it was like, he was there for one week. And then three weeks later I moved to Calgary with him. And I want to speak to that. That is probably not the best thing for an 18 year old to do, especially with someone that you barely know. And I want to like blame my, <laughs> um, my vulnerability at the time and like being taught, not being taught like what, boundaries are and stuff like that so but I went away I went and I've been like in Calgary for 12 years but like we went through this like this relationship and then I realized that he was addicted to drugs and then I got pregnant and I'm very thankful that I got pregnant even though 19 is very young to have a baby 
But like if I hadn't have gotten pregnant and like my daughter Hannah is an angel because um, if that hadn't have happened, I would have been addicted to, to drugs as well. But once I like got pregnant with Hannah, I knew like I had to change. I knew I wanted to, to give her more than I ever had in this lifetime. And I was like very committed to that. And even though the person that I was with was like really um, abusive, I wanted to try because I didn't want to be a single mom. And there's mm -hmm. like so much like um, negativity behind single parents. Like a stigma. Yeah. Like the stigma. That. And I um so I stayed in that relationship for way too long. And like in the end, we did separate and we had, but we had another baby before then, which is Lucas. And I was like 20 when I had him. And um, so then now we're here and I've learned a lot of things. And I think the really, you know, beautiful thing about you, Tapsa, is that you know, you talked about your experience as a child and at 11, the thoughts that you had in your mind and then moving to Calgary and being in this relationship and having your kids. And, you know, you, you mentioned it, you know, this inkling of hope that yeah. you had in you all the time yeah. and that you kept kind of holding on and grasping on for that. Yeah. On that note, Tapsa, how do you, like your whole life is advocating now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, constantly experiencing um, still the racism that exists, mm -hmm. um, and trying to remain hopeful. So what does self-care look like for you? Like, how do you do that? Well, I do a lot of doing nothing, to be honest. If I, if I'm feeling super crappy, then I just take a moment and I lay in bed and I cuddle with my partner or with my baby or with my other kids. But then it's also like getting my nails done. And I think totally. people don't see indigenous people like normal human beings for some reason. Like I am a child of the nineties. Like I love Spice Girls. Totally. You know what I mean? Like I, and like, I like getting my nails done. I love getting my hair done. Like I like doing those things, but then self care. I really love writing mm -hmm. and I really like, I'm a very big, like critical thinker. And I really like to reflect on the experiences that I have. And I try to understand them from what they, for what they are. So you mentioned, you know, this BS narrative. Um, and we chatted a little bit about that, uh, you know, really trying to bridge conversations and meeting people where they're at, or at least in yeah. the middle mm -hmm. to try to facilitate these conversations. So from your perspective, you know, what is the BS narrative that needs to be dismantled and needs to really, you know, be taken apart layer by layer by layer for Canadians to really understand um, mm -hmm. the experience of Indigenous people and and how un that un that piece of understanding by the greater community can really help facilitate the healing. Yeah, and I think because everyone, every system has their own like view of what indigeneity should look to them and how it should be constructed and how it should be conveyed. And like, uh, I was talking to this elder Joyce Healy, she, and she does a lot of community work and she's like, I'm sick and tired of all of your P's and Q's going into A's and B's. And mm -hmm. I couldn't have like said it better myself. Like people expect these box ticked and like quickly and with very little money, with very little representation, with very little like actual like stories from indigenous people. Like they expect one person 
to do it all. But like we are a full nation of Indigenous people from First Nations, Inuit, Métis, like there are so many different ideas of indigeneity, but people only want to see it as one. And stereotypes in this country is unreal. There is more than just me. You can't just look at me and see the whole entirety of Indigenous people, because that's just not true. And I think that's a lot of the BS narrative in um, Canadian society right now, because they want us to fit into this box. But we do not go into boxes. Like we see life in a circle and life is happening all of the time and it changes and they're, um, and it's like evolutionizing and revolutionizes and there's retribution, but then there's people who are at peace and, um, but they don't understand that it's more than, and I, I said this in one of my blogs, but you can probably see it in the way that I speak. You can probably see it in the way that I stand up or the way I take pictures. Like it's just, it's all there without it being there. Totally. And, yeah. 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 You know no, I, mean? I get it. Yeah. yeah. Thinking of all the ways of how, um, and we talked about this before, is you know taking off those boxes. We have the science, we have the statistics, and we can play it out over and over again. And we can look at all those numbers, but until we start really listening to the people and the stories right in front of yeah. us that are unfolding, and really taking the time to to actually listen. There's so much pressure for me as a human being to meet like this threshold of like success or whatever that looks like, but like. I have, I'm there now. And because I, I have to play that game, um, game A stuff because I, I want to create a better life for my children. But on top of that, no one sees me for meeting that threshold. They only see me as that statistic. They only see me as that like angry indigenous person. They don't see me as an individual. And I think that is so unbelievably frustrating. People don't see me for who I am and what I've accomplished in my life. They only see me as that general stereotype that all of like Canada holds. Like, did you see it as racism growing up or was that something that now you can See. I see it. I didn't, I don't know. I didn't really see it. I know that it like hurt me and I like always felt different. And I always use this as an example. Like I remember being in grade two, grade three, sorry. And I was uh, at my new school in Kempful, Nova Scotia. And this girl came up to me and she was like, your face looks like it was burned by a frying pan. And I was just like, huh? And oh I didn't really, gosh, yeah, right. yeah. Like, and I was nine, nine years old and I had no idea what that meant. And then, but like from that moment on, like reflecting, like that is when I felt insecure about myself as an indigenous person. And that is like at the tender age of nine, I didn't know who I was. And I know I did not want to be who I was. And I wanted to be like, I wanted to be a white girl. I wanted blonde hair. I wanted the Adidas sneakers. I wanted to meet all of those like A's and B's, right. but couldn't. Mm -hmm. So I remember that happening. And even going to, like my son had to be immunized this year. And um, they offered me an extra immunization. And I was just like, Huh? why and she's like oh people who are indigenous you know should get this and I was just like okay but why and then she kind of explained because people like lived in overcrowded houses and stuff like that and I was just like well I live a very good life and I'm very privileged in being able to be healthy and, and like provide wellness for my family and I I don't think we need this she's like well 
it's your decision then. And I was just like, well, you first saw me as that, that statistic. You didn't see me as that individual. So Tapsa, when you and I first met, I had asked you what kind of supports you wish you had when you were a child from the adults in your life. I remember coming back to you and saying, I wish other adults in my life told me that it wasn't normal to struggle, especially as I became a teenager. I also really wish that non-Indigenous people accepted me and told me that who I am as an Inuk person was amazing and beautiful. I can assume I wouldn't have been ashamed of my indigeneity. And I, I want to talk about that a little further because now that I have children who are growing up and I think my daughter's school right now is their word of the year is resilience, which is amazing. And that her grade six teacher is trying really hard to bring in like um, indigenous concepts and having the value of the indigenous voice. In grade six, I was not having that same experience. Like, I think for a really long time, um, Indigenous people were like swept underneath the rug. And I really wish like one adult in my life told me that I was special because of my Indigeneity. I had never experienced that in my life until I was 25. And then there was Berkeley, who is almost my husband. And I remember being, um, we were hanging out and this like black family came out and they were wearing like their beautiful like dresses and their beautiful like fabric and the colors. And I said, like, I wish I was something a part of that that was so special or something like that. Right. And then Berkeley was just like, well, you already are. And I, <laughs> in my heart, my heart, and I oh like, that was the goodness. first time I ever heard that. <laughs> I cry. This is why he's my almost husband. I could not believe that he said that to me. And I took what he said so seriously. And I just like went with it. And that was like in my first like couple of months of being in school and not being really comfortable with like my indigeneity teachers or any adult in uh, in a child's life, especially if they're Indigenous or Black or a person of color, they should value their ethnicity and their culture. Um, so yeah, that's what I think. And I remember saying like, what is your dream for every child? And that this is what I reflected on, um, that every child would have an equal opportunity. But I think every child should have an equitable opportunity because every child had, every child matters. But Every child is from a different family. And if they had just, if I had, because I was so, like, I was poor and I struggled a lot. If I had just a little bit more, I feel like I would be equal. Knowing that everyone starts at a different place. Yeah. We can't all, equality is a great goal mm -hmm. once everyone has equitable access to yeah, the same things. Exactly. Um, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I still fully believe in that. If you think about it, historically, Indigenous children have been significantly getting less than every other child. And to invest in that child now, especially in education, or even like in their race or telling them that they matter a little bit more is life changing. And I feel like every adult should know that. You're doing so much advocacy work at the same time experiencing the effects of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. How is that influencing the way you parent? Well, I think it really sucks that I have to talk to my kids about this, but it's just like, it is reality and I don't want to hide it from them. And I think that's how like Berkeley and I parent uh, our kids because we don't want to hide information from them. I think 
like talking to them in a way that they're going to understand because they're children, but having those important conversations with them because I want to be open with them. I don't want them to be blindsided by this information when they get older, like I was, because that's like earth shattering in itself. So having that open communication with our kids is really important. And even like they'll come to me and they'll ask me and that is like next level talking to them about like if people come to them with like racist remarks or or something like that something similar to that I want them to say I feel sorry for you because they should feel sorry for them like they have had a limited view on life and what people should look like and it's not a concept of my children it's just what they the other child has seen in their life my because my son, he's very brown. So he looks just like me and my other children are very fair. I'm not saying that Hannah's, um, because she's a little bit more fair, that her indigeneity should be questioned because it, it shouldn't. But because Lucas has brown skin and is very like uh, indigenous looking, he's going to experience life a lot different than his sister. So we have to have that conversation too, because like they might get treated differently or they might be seen differently. We tried to let them be aware of that, but in a way that they're, they're not like seeing every person as like a racist, but being aware of what, how they experience their lives will impact their view on them as individuals. And um, I think it's working. Well, it sounds like it's working really beautifully, you know, I'm going to admit that as a white parent, I never appreciated the kinds of conversations that have to happen in BIPOC homes. You know, it, it, you know, you just shared your story. And as a white parent, I'm never going to have to prep my kids for potential racism, racist behaviors, remarks, and attitudes. Um, but it does really emphasize my need and my role in dismantling systemic racism and raising my kids to be a part of the important anti-racism work that is happening. So thank you for sharing your story. The annual Orange Shirt Day movement was started by Elder Phyllis Websad, a former residential school survivor. On September 30th of every year since 2013, on this day, we are supposed to wear an orange shirt to stand in solidarity with the hundred thousands of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children that were forced into residential schools. On this day, we also honor and acknowledge the Indigenous children who did not make it home. It is an opportunity to create meaningful discussion about the effects of residential schools and the legacy they have left behind. A discussion all Canadians can tune into and create bridges with each other show recognition and work towards reconciliation. It is a day for survivors to be reaffirmed that they matter and so do those that have been affected because every child matters. The date was chosen because it is the time of year in which children were taken from their homes to residential schools and because it is an opportunity to set the stage for anti-racism and anti-bullying policies for the coming year. It is an opportunity for First Nations local governments, schools, and communities to come together in the spirit of reconciliation and hope for generations of children to come.
You know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, just this your own evolution of finding out about residential school, the experiences that you've had in raising your kids now. Um, a few days ago, it was September 30th. Every Child Matters. Um, you were a part of organizing an event here in Calgary. Yeah. And can you speak to that, just how how that was for you, having your kids with you, yeah. and, and just the perspective you take on your own life now and yeah. the experiences you've had? Yeah, Orange Shirt Day means a lot to me. Um, and I'm thankful to Phyllis and that the event only started happening in 2014. So it's like very still in, in its infancy. Um, but Phyllis Webstad wanted to honor residential school survivors, the ones that like survived and the ones that didn't. And I'm very thankful for that like movement because I'm able to I'm able to celebrate and create awareness and honor residential school survivors because of that. And so when I, I was approached to be on the board for CIF Reconciliation Society, and I didn't really like think twice about it. I was like, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and I do it because I, I honor my elders and I talked about this on my Instagram and even to the elders that day at, at the events, like if they hadn't done, if it weren't for their resilience and strength and courage, like I wouldn't be where I am today. And it makes me like want to tear up a little bit, but like, even though they had faced all of that adversity, all of that, like trauma, they came out of it and was still like, I need to do more for my children. I need to create better opportunities for my children. I need to make sure that they have the best lives that they can. And they did, even though there's policies in, gov in the government is still like responsible for having all of the Indigenous kids in care. And like, there's like, and I could go into that, but that is a part of the, like the process, but they still worked really hard and I honor that and I honor them. And I kind of said, and, and it's kind of like the Hansel and Gretel story where they were lost and they left like little bits of pieces of bread. And I see that like I, and that's how I visualize what like my elders and community members have done for me to be where I am right now and to create more for my children. And like my daughter is 11 years old right now. And speaking to when I was 11, it's that's it's 20 years, but my daughter was so is so proud of her indigeneity that she like came to this march with like the um markings on her face and that's like the tat like the traditional tattoos like any woman would get when they were younger and like they would get the line on their face when they like started menstruating and then this the v on your forehead is for like woman womanhood and my daughter saw value in that she knew and I like we don't amazing. really <laughs> I know so amazing. it's so amazing and it's like I talk to them my poor kids I talk to them <laughs> all all of the time and I'm very honest with them and like I see every opportunity as like a teaching because it's I just want them to hear it. And I like, I, I allow them to see me at work because I want them to see it. Like I, they, I want them to see it normalized, like in the Western way, like I am successful quotations. 
in the Western way, but like I'm successful because I reclaimed my identity as an indigenous woman and I'm able to do that for my children as well. And that's what I see as success. And we like, and an elder was talking about it, Doreen Spence and Beverly Hungry Wolf is her, their names, are their names. And they were talking about the importance of walking alongside and participating in the dominant society. And like, I can do that. And I see that as like a kind of like a skill, I guess. I don't see it as like a way of living. Right. I right. see it as a skill. And because I have that skill, I'm able to um, use my voice in, in like today, use my voice to create more for our children and honor the people who have worked so hard for me to get where I am today. Amazing, Tapsa. The thing that I find so beautiful about this entire conversation is, yes, the story of resilience and really your resilience journey through all of this, but the gratitude that you are rooted in and are sharing with us, I think is beautiful. This idea of resilience and what resilience looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think in today's society, it is so prevalent that we're always looking, you know, I call it the hero story. We're looking yeah. for the person who went from rags to riches and we're yeah. only focusing on the richest part yeah. without realizing that, you know, the rags to less rags is also resilience. Yeah. Um, you know, just how grateful you are for your ancestors. And even though the adversity that they are struggled through or that they continue to struggle through, you see the resilience in them. Yeah. And I just think that that's one, just so beautiful and so important mm -hmm. for us as a society to really grasp that resilience doesn't look like yeah. the rags to riches Definitely. story. I, I was thinking about this yesterday. That's so funny because everybody like sees success as like being rich and like having money and having this big house. And like, I am so thankful because I like, I grew up humble and poor. Totally. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that being poor has made me humble and I'm really like, I'm very thankful for that experience because I can see life in such a different way. And I am grateful for like everything. And that that's a part of like being like indigenous too, is like having that gratitude. And that's in my wellness too, is to remember like all the things that I have and all, not all of the things I don't have even with like speaking about my mom or my sisters, like they have lived unimaginable lives and I can't even imagine like being in their head right now, but they smile and they laugh and they have a good time. They share joy in a, in such a different way, even though they have experienced such terrible things. And that is like, that is humbling for me. And I try to live that like, in every aspect and even teaching my children that because I don't want them like I want them to be successful but I want that to be in a way that it looks good for them not like that um living on top of the hill and looking down at everyone but I want them to like understand like what they have experienced in their lives or what I have or what their grandmother has has had value and still has value um to honor every experience that they that they have had because it get has gotten us to where we are right now and i remember um talking to you about a post that you put on sterling community and like i see resilience because i see my mom smile like and that's amazing one last question 
you'll refer to your um, like your experiences early on as, you know, why was it so messed up? Can you pinpoint when your story st started to shift from one of brokenness to one of resilience? Hmm. One of, you know, moving from being messed up to one of resilience and yeah. one of hope. Is there a, yeah. something that really clicked in you where you where that shifted or is it still, you know, work in progress? It's definitely still a work, work in progress, but I think it's going to be a work in progress for like the rest of my life. But I'm hoping to get to that like place of peace. But I think it really happens when I the first thing that comes to my mind is when I got full custody of my children and that was a really hard process but I knew that I had something in me and I knew that I was able to take care of my children whether it was by myself or with someone else but when I like won that I knew that I could do it and I knew that I had value and I knew that I was able, like, and I, I was strong and I was resilient. And I didn't even really know what resilient meant at that time, but I knew that I could do it. And so that like really showed me that like life is not impossible for me and it's not impossible, impossible for our children. So that's, Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Ah, oh, Tapsa, thank you so much. I could go on forever and ever and ever and chatting with you, but I'm so grateful for your voice in our community and for using your voice to amplify other voices. Yeah. Which I think is really beautiful. Thank so, you for having me. Thank you.